0: Father, just as we heard of the miraculous work that you did amongst your people Israel so long ago, Lord, we know that you were the same God yesterday, today, and forever. We ask that you would do that same work amongst this church and all true churches in your world today. Lord, Father, that you would put your spirit within us, that we might give generously, that we might contribute our whole lives to you and might glorify you and make your presence known in this neighborhood in our homes, and around the world. Father, do this great work, and, pr- and I pray this morning, Lord, as your world is heralded, that you would send your spirit to convict us of our sin, to convict us of how we fall short and how we are stingy oftentimes. Father, make your word clear to us, and I pray, Father, that we would be motivated by your truth to live our lives as more obedient servants unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. good morning. This is an intermediate sermon. Many of you know that we just finished the book of Colossians. I pray it was a profitable study for you, and as you read through the book of Colossians now, you can see it with new eyes and appreciate it to a greater depth. Before we start a new sermon series, uh, Pastor Keith and I talked, and there's a number of topics that we wanted to address. We like preaching verse by verse, as you know, but there is a time and a place for topical preaching. Topical expository preaching, that is. We know that Spurgeon, his whole ministry, never did a verse-by-verse book book, book verse series. But he and Martin Lloyd-Jones, being another example, would often pray and ask and be wanted, wanted the freedom of the Spirit to pick a passage and to pick a part of Scripture that would apply to the lives of the congregation. We are thankful that we have that freedom. And that we learn from our brothers like Zwingli and John MacArthur who preach verse by verse. We also are thankful for men like Spurgeon that we can take an example and by the word of God see and notice where where are we at as a body and what are some things that we would want God to speak into us that we might live into more obedience. So this morning the question is where is your treasure and are you living a generous life? Is your whole life seen as a contribution and generous to God and being generous to God. Oftentimes money and giving are a faux pas in the American church to talk about. But this morning we want to bring that to your attention because as Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is there your heart will be also. I care, God cares, we all care where your heart is this morning. And it just so happens that where your treasure is is the primary indicator of that. Now, don't be nervous. I'm not going to shake you down for any money. What we want to see here is how the work of the Spirit comes upon his people and allows us to live generous lives. I am struck from this passage about how they were giving more and more to the point where they had to be restrained. And I pray that that would be the case for this church as well. It's important that we get the context of this passage. And I did my best to try to prepare the context for you both through giving you some videos to watch through the email and also preparing the service outline today. I pray that as you listen to the passages read, seen the confession, call to worship, um, prayer for the oppressed, that you heard various parts of Exodus that helped bring to mind maybe your previous reading so that when we come to pawn verse 36, you know the right context of it. Just to bring you up to speed, 30,000-foot view of Exodus, this God's people were delivered out of Egypt by the miraculous hand of God. We saw those famous plagues and how he used Moses and Aaron to lead his people out. Sadly, though, they very quickly grumbled and rebelled and were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years based on their own sin. The second half of the book of Moses is at the foot of Mount Sinai, the place where Moses went up on the mountain to receive the commands from God. And during this time, the people, as you heard from the reading of Sinning Confession, grew impatient Just as Moses was receiving the law so that these people could live rightly with God, they grew impatient. And wickedly, they attributed what was God that brought them out to this golden calf and to their gods, the idols. You you think, how hard-hearted are those people? But we, we are not much different, brothers and sisters. We need to look at our own hearts. Thankfully, God in his grace used Moses as a mediator and brought his people into his right presence Yes, he sent a plague, but he was also able to, in his mercy, um, look over their sin and, and grant them grace where they did not deserve it. God said, I want you to build a sanctuary in chapter 25, and this was a promise given to them. This sanctuary would have been 45 feet in length, around 15 feet in, uh, in width, and 15 feet in height. So not unlike this room that we are standing in right now, um, not too much different. And so you can get just a general feel for how big this traveling tent tabernacle would have been. This would have been the place where God would have taken up residence and lived in the presence of his people. Now we know from the Psalms that God is everywhere. That you cannot go to the depths of the sea or to the heights of the mountain and not, avoid, and not escape the presence of God. And yet, God's very real covenant loving presence was specifically in the tabernacle. And we should want that presence brothers and sisters. The tabernacle was used until the time of Solomon when he came and he, and he built a temple, an even greater one, and that was used for the, so that people could worship God and pray for, na- pray for the nations and be the conduit of grace that God wanted them to be to the world. This morning, I want you to ask yourself, is God's presence what is most important to you? The same motivation that the Israelites had in this passage to build a sanctuary so that God's presence could be amongst them. Do you have that same passion and desire for God's covenant loving presence to be in your life and in this church? I pray that's the case and I pray that we see that there's nothing more important than the presence of God. It is a key theme in the grand narrative of scripture. Ever since the beginning in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost the presence of God We see that God is redeeming his people throughout the whole sweep of scripture into the end when he comes back and brings us perfectly into his presence. So this idea of the presence of God is the theme that we'll be exploring today and how God uses our generosity to prepare it. It's a curious thing that he would use sinners like us to prepare his most holy presence. God graciously equipped the Israelites and he graciously equips us, his people this morning, for generosity and service out of stirred hearts and out of and from continuous generosity he equips us and he blesses us that his presence might be felt amongst his people that is what we'll be examining this morning and i pray that you have ears to hear the first question we ask is how indeed does god equip his people how does god fill his people this his people who sinned and rebelled against him, how does he fill them with his spirit, and how does he make them generous? Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put intelligence and skill to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in, whom, uh, in whose mind the Lord had put skill Everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. God filled his people with skill here, and we see specifically a guy named Bezalel, another man named Aholiab, and we have these craftsmen. Now what we don't get from this passage, but what we see in a previous passage in chapter 31, is that God filled Bezalel, the leader of this construction project, with his Holy Spirit. Now, we know specifically in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the New Testament church and comes in a unique way to indwell the hearts of believers. We see that, and I pray that if you've repented and trusted in the Christ, then you too have the Holy Spirit, and you know his role in your life. But then we have to ask ourselves, what did the Holy Spirit look like, and how did he operate in the Old Testament? If he came upon Bezalel and he gave and he gave the people skill and intelligence. What, what did that look like for them and how does that apply to us? What's interesting in verse 31, in chapter 31 rather, is that it, it talks about Bezalel being filled with the Spirit and then being given skill, intelligence, and craftsmanship. What he's given is not four distinct separate things, but what he's given is one primary thing, the Spirit of God. And, it ta- and it's the Spirit of God that comes inside Bezalel, and it's able to take those other God-given gifts that he has, and, it, and God uses that Spirit-filled nature of Bezalel to be able to actually do this construction product, project to the nth degree so that it might glorify, glorify God appropriately. If you've ever read chapters 25 through 31 of Exodus, you know the detail that God had given for this sanctuary to be built. Sometimes it's it's so minute that it talks about the colors of the thread and the, the, the way that it's supposed to be woven and how each item is supposed to be placed. There's so much detail that he needed the Spirit of God. They needed the Spirit of God to be able to complete it up to God's perfect holy standard. I want us to note that God put the skill and intelligence within the people. It wasn't just Bezalel, but it was the craftsman in Aholiab as well. This reminds us of an important principle, brothers and sisters, that God always provides for the work that he intends to be done. God does not ever tell his people to do something and then leaves them hanging. God always gives his people the resources necessary to complete the project, and it's no different with the Israelites in this case. God's grace was overflowing with these proud complainers. You and I would not want to spend one minute with a proud complainer, would we let alone dwell with them? So if if we have a hard time sitting down and having a conversation with someone who's constantly complaining and is full of pride, then think about God, the one who has never sinned, the most holy being in all of the universe, coming and saying, "No, I will not choose to spend 1 minute with you people to have a little quick conversation, but I will dwell with you. I will live with you. I will put up with your sin, and not only that, but I will forgive it by my grace." The fact that God decides to put his skill and intelligence into these wayward people is a miracle, and I pray that we revel in his grace in seeing that. We notice here that he puts it in them not for their own selfish purposes. God isn't saying, okay, here you get to be a great craftsman so that you get to go and be creative and do marvelous works of art and make your houses really nice. Well, while many of them may have been great craftsmen, he gave them this special skill and equipped Bezalel with the Holy Spirit for one distinct purpose. That's to follow his commands in building the sanctuary. Now you say, well, why did it have to be precise? Why did they need the Spirit to be able to build the sanctuary? Well, the precision that you read in the previous chapters and that you see in the tabernacle, it was there not just to make people's reading through Exodus more difficult, but it was there to reflect the precise, holy nature of God, to show that God is not a God of, uh, who's not sloppy, he's not careless, but God cares about every detail of this place because his presence is what's most important. Amen? His presence. God desires not just precision, though, but look here in verse 2. It says that everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. So God not only gave them the intellectual ability to make all of these parts of the sanctuary, but he also stirred them up and their hearts were stirred so that they could come and do the work. An interesting distinction here is that it says that God put skill and intelligence within the people, but it says that their hearts stirred them up. So What is being emphasized here is that these people are not robots. They're not just passive instruments that God uses. God is not just saying, okay, I'm going to download this code onto you and use you as a robot to do this work. But when it says their hearts stirred them up, what it's reminding us of is their own volition, their own responsibility and sense that by my will, I need to take responsibility for this work. I've heard that God has promised this to take place. Now I need to get involved and step into the work God is doing. I need to take that upon myself and not rest on the grace of God and presume that he will just do it all for me or that he will somehow take me over as a robot and work through me that, that bypasses my will. No. God doesn't bypass the will, but he uses it, and he enlivens it so that it might be stirred up for his good works. God's promise, notice, it led these people not to sloth, but to action. Now, I hate it when I hear criticisms that Calvinist theology or Reformed theology, it either dampens evangelism or missions, we see here very much that this is not the case. That God had promised something to take place. It was set in stone, and yet that did not leave, the, leave these people to a place of laziness, but it led them to a place of excitement uh, and, and a vigorous heart that wanted to come and work for God. It excited them, and it, it, it gave them the assurance that this would be completed, and they thought, wow, that God would use me, that God would use us to complete his work. That's an amazing thing, and I pray that each of you have that sense as well, that God is going to complete whatever he wants to do. He is sovereign, and he is good, and yet you get to join him in that great effort. Is your heart stirred for God and contributing? Their hearts were stirred. An example of this, a great example we just saw in Sunday school, was George Whitfield. That man was stirred For the work of God. He was an actor by trade, and God used his skill and his intelligence, along with a redeemed new heart, to go and to preach to multitudes, to bring thousands to salvation, and to change the entire wake of the course of this nation. We see from history how history itself bends around the pulpits and around the preaching of godly men. We saw that in the, the course of how Europe was shaped by the preaching of Martin Luther and John Calvin. And very much in America today, the, the place we're at today, we are greatly indebted to George Whitefield and his preaching. And even a man like John Wesley in the Methodist movement, God uses the enlivened, stirred-up hearts of people to, to complete his work and to shape history. There have been many historians who even said that the reason why England didn't have the same upheaval and revolution that France did was because of the, of the religious revivals that were taking place in England and the Methodist movement that stirred up the, the peasants' hearts such that they desired to honor those in authority rather than revolt against them in a violent way. It's an interesting thing to see how God is the one shaping history, and yet he uses you and I and sinners to bring about his purposes. Isn't that glorious? So is your heart stirred up for God? Is it stirred up for contributing all that you have? And do you value his presence? We got to look at Colossians at the end of Dr. Luke and how God used his skill as a physician to aid Paul and to further the Great Commission. So I hope that last week, as you heard that, you were able to spend some time contemplating on what, what skills might I have? How has God gifted me? What have I been trained in in my vocation that will translate into building his kingdom both in the office space and within the church. I hope that you've put some thought and prayer to that. This morning, I want you to take those meditations, and I want you to pair them with this stirred heart that God's people had for seeing that I want more than anything else, more than my private house or my private kingdom, I want the kingdom of God to reign, and I want his presence to be amongst his people and where it is currently not known. Ask yourself that. That is your skill and is your intelligence, and and are the things that God has gifted you with are you allowing yourself to be stirred up? Are you stirring your own affections up so that God is using them to be poured out on those who do not know His presence currently? We all fall short of this, brothers and sisters. If we're honest, our hearts are, are often cold and they need stirred, stirring up every single day. That we, like the Israelites, both get indifferent about God and we also become angry with him and impatient with him as they were when Moses was on the mountain. We want to see oftentimes God doing something in our lives that is not currently there. We want him to change our circumstances. We want him to answer a prayer now. We want him to make our church bigger. We want him to provide a certain amount of money for this or that project. But God is saying, be patient. God is saying, use the skills you have Wait for me and trust that I will always accomplish my purposes. You need to simply be faithful for what I've given you. Be passionate, not for what you think I should do, but be passionate for what I've clearly called and equipped you to do. There are many idols in our culture and in the church that we fall prey to and that we allow to suck and siphon off the passion that we owe God alone. It's easy to look out in the culture and to see those golden calves. Hindus literally worship cows. It's easy to look out and to see the soccer leagues that are going on right now down the street and to say, wow, I see golden calves all around. I see idols in the culture. We also need to be very vigilant that we are looking and examining our own heart and not allowing those idols to be constructed within the walls of this church as well. Christians who are silent, who do not want the presence of God to leave their own quiet time in the morning. That can be an idol, brothers and sisters. The idol of your personal relationship with God that doesn't make its way out to anyone else. We can very subtly build the idol in the golden calf of the fear of man. Also, we can say, thank you, God, for filling me with intelligence, for giving me your spirit as you did Bezalel. But it's easy to take that intelligence in our knowledge of the right things to say and to build up a wall and to put on a mask and to build a facade where we can hide behind our theology and knowing what to to say to brothers and sisters and not letting them truly in on our lives and our depravity and our sin that needs to be brought into the light and eradicated. God can also even stir up our hearts. He can stir up your heart... But that stirring, if not done, as it says here in verse 1, according to what the Lord has commanded, if that passion is not confined and restrained within the walls of God's commands, that too can become an idol. It's really easy to whip yourself up or to base your relationship with God or your, your own understanding of how mature you are based on how you feel and how passionate you are in the moment. There's times when great men like Charles Spurgeon went through months and years of depression and yet God was using them in those dark moments of affliction to grow them even more. It's easy to look out and to say, well, I might be a faithful contributor, I might be giving, I might be passionate in my giving, but it's it's something different to say, am I doing that for appearances? Am I doing that just to meet expectations? Or have I truly been so gripped by this God and a desire for his presence, that that is what is motivating me to give and contribute my, my time, my money, my skills, my efforts, all that God has given me for the advancement of his kingdom. We must be on the lookout for these idols in our own hearts and in our lives that they don't subtly take root and, and get constructed in this church or in other true churches around the world that we might, um, that we might not worship God with this stirred up heart and this affection within the bounds of his commands as we ought. We struggle with idolatry. We struggle with being passionate. And so the question is, how can we change? How can we go from being people who, who are humdrum about, about church or have, have saying, okay, well, I'm just going to give what, I, what I've always given. I'm going to do just the 10% and nothing more. Or I'm going to see that, okay, well, my gifts, they work well in, in this context, but asking me to serve in this other way, well, that would be asking too much of me. This is some examples of, of how we are, are stingy at times and we lack the generosity to give freely and open-handedly to God. So how can we change when we are like that? When we notice in our heart a coldness and a lack of desire to, to contribute to God's sanctuary building? Well, the way we change is the same way that our ancestors changed, it's transformation by the gospel. The same way that they needed a mediator, brothers and sisters, we need a mediator too. They were dead in their sins. That when they had, when they had constructed that calf and when they had been worshiping it and attributing everything that God did for them to the calf instead, all they, all they deserved in that moment was God's fiery wrath. They deserved to be consumed on the spot. And yet, God, although he did send a plague, he spared his remnant. He, he spared many of them, and he gave them grace. And that was because of the work of a mediator. We read in Exodus thirty-three, thirteen through 14, it says, Now therefore, Moses is speaking, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, God said to Moses, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. God promised Moses, because Moses found favor in God's sight, that he would spare his people and give them rest rather than wrath. What an amazing thing that these people who were disqualified to come into God's presence had a mediator like Moses, who found favor in God's sight to intervene for them. It was not the Israelites' goodness or their own ability to change, but it was Moses' favor that caused God to relent from giving them what they deserved. It was Moses' mediation that allowed God's presence to be with his people once again. And brothers and sisters, we face the same problem of idolatry. We face those same problems of sloth. And yet God has sent an even better mediator for us. His name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself how did he mediate for us? He came, and he gave his life away. He came, and all he ever did was give to those who were in need. He, all he did was live for the glory of the Father. And in the end, what did it get him? It got him a cross. It got him a crucifixion. At the end of the day, Jesus' generous, continuous giving, it got him the forsaking of the presence of God, not the gaining of it. So as Israel was called and as we are called to be generous and to give and to use the skill God has given us so that we might prepare the presence of God to be here and to make it known, Jesus did that. But instead of getting the presence of God on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that short moment, God turned his face away from Christ and all of the wrath of God was poured out on the Son, and he took that for you and I. He took your sin upon himself. He took your indifference, he took your sloth, he took your laziness, he took your stinginess, he took took my idolatry, he took all of his people's sin upon himself. And that is the good news, brothers and sisters. The same way that God was able to relent from wrath towards Israelites because of Moses' mediation, Jesus is the great high priest who stepped into your place on the cross and took the wrath of God for you. Jesus says, forgive them for they know not what they do. He wanted to show us God's grace. He wanted to show us God's love. And because Jesus was passionate that we might know and taste the loving presence of God and to be able to come into the sanctuary of God in the, at the end, to be able to enter heaven and actually have the presence of God dwell within us now, because Jesus desired that more than his own personal comfort, he was willing to give everything away for you and I. If you would turn and trust in Christ this morning. If you have not come to Christ before, if you would turn and trust in him, then you for the first time will experience the presence of God. That you will know what it's like to not have to give with, you, with your hands clasped, but you will know what it means to, be, to live freely and generously. And if you, brothers and sisters, are Christians who see yourself as, as maybe having to stir up your heart because it's often cold, that not just giving financially, but contributing to the brothers and sisters' needs through the skill and gifts that he's given you seems like a chore or is, or is not your desire. If you have lost that pip in your step and that you have, you have said, well, you know, I don't know how much good this is doing, then this good news is also for you. The gospel that saves sinners is the same gospel that we need to recite to ourselves and preach to ourselves, that our hearts might too be stirred up so that we value the presence of God above all else and we see it as our mission, and God uses us as the means by which he will make that presence known to others. That is the gospel that changed them and can change us this morning. What happened on the cross, also that, that curtain that was built in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, what had happened to it? It was torn down the middle. That, that curtain was torn. And when that reminds us is that the presence of God is now living within our hearts. That that sanctuary that was constructed here in Exodus 36, that much detail went into, that you, if you are a true follower of Christ, then that same holy of holies that was that place where the high priest could only go once a year and that certain death would come upon any who desired desired to enter that place, that same holy presence of God has taken up residence in you if you are a Christian that should cause you great trembling. That should cause you great fear in awe that God would choose to come and take up residence in your heart. Because the presence of God can be in us now, we must desire through generosity and through our contributions to make that more tangible in our lives so that we might make it known to others and to take that presence where it is currently not known. So we have to ask ourselves, what should we expect from the people of God both then and today what should we expect from them once God does a mighty work and he fills us with his spirit we'll see that in the remainder of the verses verses 3 through 7 look with me what should we expect when the holy spirit takes up residence inside his people and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought For doing the work on the sanctuary. And they still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning. So that all the craftsmen were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary. They came. Each from the task that he was doing. And Moses said to the people, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord God has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command. And word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman... Do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material that they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. The free will offerings given here of continuous generosity led to overflowing resources and, and sufficient and abundant resources to complete all of God's purposes. That's what we can expect, brothers and sisters, both then and today. a a heart that is gripped by the gospel and that is filled with the Spirit should be restrained from giving more. Now, when's the last time you heard a sermon that said, calm down, restrain yourself? That is what we should be calling ourselves to if we are truly gripped by the gospel. Could you imagine what this would look like? Not only in this church, but if every true church in America and around the world had to be told to be restrained, Could you imagine how that might shape culture and change many of the the, the dark institutions that are around the world today? Could you imagine what happened if the church was so passionate and on fire that their hearts were so stirred up for God and said, all the skill and intelligence and gifting that you've given me, it's yours, God. Could you imagine what the church and what the world would look like if every true church was told to be restrained? It's an amazing thought. It's, It's incomprehensible. But I pray that you can just maybe use your imagination a little bit to get a glimpse of what that might look like and ask for yourself, how might that look in your own heart? For Israel, this was a community effort. So every morning, the people were coming and they were, they were bringing resources. Yes, God called Bezalel, Aholiab, and certain craftsmen for certain details, but it was the whole nation of Israel, all the people that were continuously, every morning, bringing these free will offerings. And so if we want to see change, we can't just be concerned about ourselves, but we have to say, how can I link arms with brothers and sisters and disciple them and get them on, on the same page so that they are being stirred up as well? How can we see ourselves as a collective church doing God's work and not just me individually? That if we do this as a church, that there's, there's much more work that we can do together, brothers and sisters. And there's much more um, probability that we would need to be restrained if we all come together and do things together rather than try to do things alone. So we see this as a community effort. And they are bringing something called a free will offering. And you might say, what's that? What's a free will offering? Well, any of you who are brave enough to have read through the book of Leviticus know that a free will offering is different than many of the other offerings you saw there. You have burnt offerings, meal offerings, peace offerings, transgression offerings. You, have, you, you even have tithes tithes in Leviticus as well. Those were all required of the people of God as part of their end of the covenant to stay in relationship with him. Those were requirements of the people, and they were not to give them out of just religious duty or pharisaical obligation, but they were to do them unto the Lord with, with a pure heart, but they were still required now, free will offerings, on the other hand, originated here in Exodus, and they were not required, but they were given to the people as a way to give thanks and to be the outpouring and overflow of the heart to God. In times when great things had happened, when, when battles were won or when things were established, the people of God, oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, would come together and would, would slaughter tons of oxes and animals and bulls they would come and they would worship God with these free will offerings. This was the overflow of a changed heart. This was the overflow of gratitude of people who who got the gospel, who understood that a Messiah would come to cleanse them, and they were so excited about that they couldn't help but bring these offerings to God. Now, we know that Christ came and he fulfilled the law. Therefore, the tithe as we know it, was fulfilled perfectly in Christ. So the, these other offerings we referred to in Leviticus and the tithe itself were part of the ceremonial law that Jesus fulfilled. And Jesus perfected that work for being the, the spotless lamb that died for us. So that whole sacrificial and ceremonial system is no longer in place for the church today. But you know what got carried over? The free will offering. We, see, we hear that same type of offering reflected in 2 Corinthians 9-7. It says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Yes, we are not given the same boundaries that they had in terms of, um, in terms of what animals they could or could not bring. I don't see any of you brought animals this morning with you. Um, but the, the spirit of this offering is still very much alive for us, that we, are, we ought to give out of a cheerful heart. Now, the tithe, as we, many of us know it, it, was, it meant, literally meant the 10, 10%, but if you looked at some of the other things they had to tithe to, both to the priests um, and to the land and other factors, it really came in, if you look at Leviticus 27, at more like 23% rather than only 10 So for those of you, the, the hardline 10%ers, I want to challenge you a little bit there to say that the tithe was more than that for the Israelites. But with that said, 10% is, um, is something that is a good litmus test for us to start with when we think about free will offerings, but it is certainly not the rule that we abide by and that we follow. Um, we ought to be, as they were, filled with the Spirit and led to give out of a stirred heart. So that is way, the way we should think about our free will offerings as well, that if we have been gripped by this gospel, that that number is not our, the final deciding factor. We know that for some, 10% might be what God wants them to do. For some, it might not. You need to ask yourself and spend time with God in terms of what you have been given and what you are to give in the future. Am I, going to, am I more like that widow with, with the two pennies to give? Or am I more like Ananias and Sapphira who just sold a field and have so many resources? Am I holding back from God? So it's not an amount. It's not one specific percentage. For one person, giving X amount would be like that widow with the two copper coins. And God might say, look at this woman's generosity, or look at this man's generosity. For someone to give that same amount, it might be like Ananias and Sapphira withholding from God. And so we cannot put one number to it, but we must be led by the Spirit. We must ask, how am I giving in the based on the generosity that God has shown me in the gospel. This will require, brothers and sisters, and what it required for them was both short and long-term planning in their giving. Notice that they brought these contributions every morning. So if they had brought in all the contributions on the first day, then they wouldn't have had more to give the next morning. And so what this reminds us of is our giving should not just be um, just haphazard, but it should be strategic as well. So I pray that this, Uh, motivates you to have a long and a short-term plan for your giving. A long-term plan in that you ask yourself, how might God use me and bless me with resources so that my giving can increase over the years as I grow in maturity and godliness and learn by faith how to sacrifice more? How can I have a long-term plan for my giving? In the short term, these people were giving what God had given them, but they were still able to eat, they were still able to survive, so they must have had a short-term plan as well. It is unwise to give to the point where, where you're starving, where you don't have anything to wear or to eat. And so this requires a budget and a short-term plan as well. So I know that this is, is, is convicting for me as well and that um, we need to be planning how the money is coming in, how we're gonna put that to God, not just haphazardly giving to God, but saying, God, prayerfully, what might you be calling me to give? And, and how does that stack up Against the amount of money that I might budget for restaurants or budget for entertainment or other purposes. They would have had to have been strategic here, and so ought we. They had this wonderful responsibility to give so that they might be used of God to bring God's presence. And this is Camden Avenue, or Cambrian Parks Baptist Churches. It's our responsibility as well because we desire God's presence here. We desire his light to shine brighter and to go further. Two examples of a very, a very practical way that this is done in this church. Your giving this last year was able to be used of God to set up the kids' training room. And so what that does is that enables parents who desire for the light of the gospel to go into the hearts of their children. It, it, it provides them and equips them with the resources needed for a place that they get to learn how to listen to a sermon. They get to learn how to to, um, focus on what is being said. And for those of you sitting in the sanctuary, that as the little ones are are still um, learning how to be quiet, you get the blessing of actually hearing the gospel with greater clarity. Um, And so that's just one little example, very tangibly, about how your contributions have allowed the light of of, of God and his presence to be felt here. But not only is it to be brighter here in this church, But also, how can we take the presence of God elsewhere? Another very practical example. Your giving has, in this past year, enabled us to help our brothers and sister in the United Arab Emirates to go and start a college ministry and continue a great work of creating disciples on Muslim-majority campuses where the gospel is, is currently not there. They get to go, and they, by our resources, get to make disciples and have training So these college students are equipped to make disciples in this area of the country that is a hub for a lot of the Muslim countries there. So even though it might seem small for us, it's this generosity that God uses as a tool to bring his presence into the very darkness there in the Middle East. And I'm so thankful to God for that, that we get to be a part of his redeeming work. That He said it will be done. We know that God will bring all the nations to himself, and yet we get to be um, generous givers, to see, um, to see that end come about. What a glorious thing, and what a great responsibility we have to be stewards and generous with what God has given us. We must be restrained from giving if we contemplate those who are being damned because they've never heard the name of Christ before, that those who are going to hell because they have been born in a nation that, that has not received the gospel yet, Or we we should be restrained from thinking how, how much better and how much more fully can the gospel be expressed here and lived out in every facet of this church. When you contemplate what's at stake here, heaven and hell and souls, then I pray that when you see the weight and the gravity of what we are doing and what your contribution goes to, then I pray that you have to be restrained. That God restrains us from giving too much so that he might be glorified. Like the Sabbath, God, there is times when he tells us to be restrained. On the Sabbath day, if you remember, it was a day of rest. And while many societies who don't come from that Judeo-Christian worldview don't take a Sabbath in a similar way, they just keep working because they see the profits go up, we are told by God that we need to rest, that that Sabbath is built in. In that same way, a question for us, and what we should get from this passage isn't just do more, do more, do more, give more, give more, give more. That's not what we hear here. But what we hear is give strategically. Give as you are led by the Spirit, and at times, think about how might you restrain your giving or give it in other ways. It's important for us to see that this word here in this passage is nuanced in how we give. We are a busy culture that, that continues to to run and to go and to serve. And so we don't we want to be countercultural. We don't want to buy into that. We want to work hard and have much blood, sweat and tears for the furtherance of the gospel. And yet we want to be careful that when God commands here the Moses that said, okay, there's enough. Don't give any more. When God has commanded that, clearly they should not have given more, or it would have been a sin. Now, it is not that clear cut for us in black and white that we ought to stop serving in this particular facet or way or manner. So this requires us to be sensitive to what God has called you to and what he's doing. And to say that God does not need me to serve in every way all the time. This requires us to to take time to ask God, what is my calling and where do you want me to serve? What things is God asking you to say no to so that you might glorify him more? Now, Early, or earlier in this, this sermon, we had a call to the idolatrous and to the stingy and slothful to ask, why, why are you not seeing God for who he is and giving more? Now, the, the counterpart to that and the, the other part of the sermon that we need to hear is not for those who struggle with sloth or struggle with, with not bringing contribution, but for those who pridefully give because they think that they are serving God with their hands, that just as, as those who are indifferent to God need to be exhorted, those who think that um, I'm going to serve so that, so that my name will subtly be um, proclaimed and lifted up, we need to hear this passage too. Those of you who have a hard time resting and have a hard time trusting in God, who, who get our hands in it and say, well, I'm going to stop praying and I'm going to start doing. We need to hear this call for restraint as well. We need to see that God is God and he will do what he wants. That we ought to offer our lives generously, but that when we realize he doesn't need us, it is so freeing. And it allows us to serve with joy and it prevents us from burnout. In a smaller church, that's a very real possibility for people to get burnt out if we serve too much, if do too much. We should ask ourselves, rather than saying yes to every opportunity, rather than just simply giving indiscriminately, help me to think about what God might want me to be restraining so that he might be glorified. Much worry, fear, and faithlessness is an attack on this central truth. In the garden, God's presence was lost because Adam and Eve trusted didn't trust that god would provide they they didn't when god said there are all these trees you can eat from but don't eat eat from this one they didn't trust god's provision in the garden did they and because they didn't trust that god would truly satisfy their hearts and they wanted to be god themselves and they thought that 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 the forbidden fruit would be better they took of it and so we still face that same dilemma where we do not trust god's provision we don't, when God says, I will complete this work, I will do it, oftentimes we think we have to give God a little help out there. And we need to be convicted by this passage and by this call that the Israelites were called to restrain themselves. We need to say, well, God will do his work. He will use me, and yet I need to trust that he will provide. When we hear the pearl of great price, Jesus calls us to consider to give away what we once f- thought as more valuable, for the pearl, Christ himself, which is most valuable. And so when we think of our giving, we see it not in terms of this is a tax or an obligation, but we see it as giving and con- contributing both our money and our service and our gifts. We see it as a worship tool. It is an opportunity to choose once one time and again and again is to choose the pearl of great price and to make that pearl look more beautiful and glorious to the onlooking world than, than they see it currently. The resources you have been given are to be stewarded as a worship tool so that people might see your giving and might see your calendar and your time and your skills, and they ought to think, wow, you must really value this pearl. You must really see Jesus as as beautiful as you're saying that he is and that is reflected in your life. So I pray, brothers and sisters, that you see God as sufficient, that he does not need you. And yet, how, how kind is he to give you his resources, to fill you and to bless you, so that you might use that as a tool to show that he is most valuable and most worthy. I pray that that is the spirit of your giving. That you, like the Israelites, realize that everything you have is a gift. Nothing is truly yours. For the Israelites, even the treasure that they had, this, these contributions they were bringing every morning— you know what it was? It was mostly the, the, the plunder that they got from Egypt. They can't take credit for that. God brought them out of Egypt and gave them the plunder. So what they were giving, they, they very much knew was not even theirs to give. <coughs> the s- skill and intelligence, God put that in them. It was from God. And so there's no such thing as self-made men and women in the Bible or in history. They got that, and I pray that we get that too. We see everything that I have, my gifts, time, and resources are a gift from God. Now, how am I, the question isn't how much should I give to God, but, but how much does God want me to keep so that, my, so that my welfare and my house is cared for and loved well? The question isn't, oh, well, how much does God need from me, but how can I show God to be most valuable, and what does he want me to keep for myself? And when we're keeping stuff for ourselves, it's not even truly for us, but it's so that we might be well and so that our houses might be cared for. That should be the questions we ask in the demeanor of our giving brothers and sisters. We are not, as a church, we are not called to a stale continuum of coming Sunday after Sunday and just doing the same thing, of just giving the same amount and contributing the same gifts we always had, and just, just warming the pew. That's not what we're called to. We're called to the Great Commission. Just as they were called, the Israelites were called to build the sanctuary, to be involved in a project so that God might be known amongst them, we are called, and we are on a mission not just to have it be flatlined, but to be increasing in our godliness, and to be more every year more aware of God's presence in our lives and more willing to make that presence known to others. So we, brothers and sisters, are not on a stale continuum, but I pray that we are on an upward trajectory. Now, the way that that worked itself out, again, very practically in our church, as we'll hear at the members meeting later, is that for our kids' ministry, we want Sunday school and for our kids to be discipled and brought up in the Lord in a way that is more strategic and more centered on the word of God. We are reforming that. And that is a great opportunity for us as a church to bless our children and the future generations of Cambrian Park Baptist Church, for us to honor those in the 50s that started it and guard that deposit and pass it down. We also have the opportunity to reach out to college campuses, De Anza, San Jose City. In this city, we have an opportunity to make the light of the glory of the gospel known where it currently is not. We're not here to sit back and wait for them to come to us, but we are, our desire this year in 2018 is to go more to them, and to do with a more concerted effort. Our desire is for our community, for Cambrian Park, to know that we are here, to know the resources we have available, and to know that we are a church that proclaims the truth of God. And all the sheep that God is calling to himself, I pray that if they know one of you, or if they know about our church, they will know that they can come here, and they are welcome to hear the gospel, repent, and be discipled to grow in the faith. We are on a mission, brothers and sisters, to make the, God, the presence of God more tangible here and in our community. So the question is, will you contribute? Will you join us? Will you see it as your duty, not because God needs you, but out of a, a heart that's been so stirred by the generosity of God that you are excited and passionate and your heart is stirred for the work God is doing in this place? Just the same way God ordained the sanctuary to be completed, God has also ordained that Satan will be defeated. And that one day the new Jerusalem will come out of heaven onto this earth and we will dwell in the perfect presence of God forever. The same way that those people were promised that the work would be done, we are promised that the work will be done. God will not fail. Amen? He will not fail His presence will be here in all the darkness that we see around us. All those terrible headlines you see in the news will be no more one day. Justice will perfectly be exacted. And his loving community will be established here in this world. And so it's the same reliance that they had that God will provide and he will do this work. We know that God will do it here. And that should cause us to have to be restrained in our giving. The last verse here is curious. In verse 7, it says the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Well, it doesn't tell us exactly what the more is, but we know that God's sanctuary was sufficiently built up to speck. It was built so that his people could have his presence traveling with them in the wilderness and then over into the promised land, and it would be that way until Solomon would come. We don't know what that more is, but we do know that God has dwelt with his people from that time until now. We know that he is continuing to do more and more work amongst his people in this world. That we know that when the Spirit was poured out and at Pentecost and his people received it and were filled with, with the word of truth to take the gospel to the nations, we know that we are part of that more. That, that more the work that God wants to, to, to do in that presence that he has given you and I that he has provided for it. And so it is our great privilege and duty to contribute. I pray that your hearts are stirred for a free will offering, that you see it not just as your money, but your time, your skills, and your entire life as a living sacrifice. There's two projects you can engage in, brothers and sisters. Only two. You can engage in the project of building the golden calf building idols, increasing the value of your own private kingdom, or God's building project, the project of the sanctuary, the place where we know that there's nothing more that we need than the presence of God, that there's nothing more we need to fix the problems that we have in our lives. There's nothing more that we need to fix the problems in this community than the presence of God itself. We want the presence of God desperately to be made more tangible and manifest in us, And we are so thankful that the means by which he'll do that is through our contributions. If you have faith in that same gospel that saved those idolaters, if you have faith that a great mediator has come and has taken your sin and you've trusted in him, then his resources are made available to you. You in and of yourself cannot be as generous as you ought, and yet Christ in you Being connected to the vine enables you with spiritual power to to give your all. To give not pridefully or more than you ought, where God is saying, restrain yourself and you keep going because you want to make a name for yourself. No, but in Christ, you are given the resources to supernaturally do what God wants done. Just as he filled Bezalel with his Holy Spirit so that he might complete the work and do it as if God were doing it himself you too can work on behalf of God. I pray this puts you in awe of his grace, that you are amazed at his ability to transform your own heart, and that you can rest, that his work will be complete. Let's pray. Father, we need you to equip us, not only with intelligence or skill, but we need you to stir our hearts, that we may not grow stagnant as a people, Lord, that we may not presume upon your grace or a decision we once made, but that, God, we see that you are beautiful and your presence is all that we need. Lord, help us to see that if we have your presence, we are satisfied that our hearts can be still and at rest in you. All of those fears that we might have that your work might not be completed, Lord, I pray that you would cause those fears to be cast out right now. Lord, although we do not know precisely exactly what you will do through us, help us to be faithful to give and to contribute. And Lord, I pray that this year, you would use this humble body to do great works for you, to make the presence of God known in this community. In Jesus' name, amen.